Hello everyone and welcome back to another one of our weekly podcasts. My name is Richard. On behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Last week, we heard from Pastor Brian as we continued our study of finding Jesus in the Old Testament. This week, we're going to be hearing from Pastor Chris as we continue along that study in the Old Testament. Now with all that said and done, let's go ahead and dive into this week's message with Pastor Chris. So we are knee deep in our study, Jesus in the Old Testament. And uh, the Lord put it on Brian's heart, the Lord put it on my heart to go through this series for a specific reason. So that we as Christians would know Jesus is not an afterthought. He isn't something that you just tack on at the end of a prayer or before a meal. Uh, he wasn't one in which God just tacked on you know, to his redemptive plan. It's not like God took Jesus and called him up from the minor leagues because he needed someone to save the world. The Lord isn't an afterthought. The Lord isn't some patch. Jesus is or was, is, and always will be. In fact, the Bible says Jesus is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And so we're going to look this morning in the Old Testament specifically at the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 1. So all you Bible heads out there, maybe you're familiar with the verse, maybe you're not. But let's look at Jesus in Genesis. So Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we know that statement. We've heard that statement many times. It's a powerful group of words that, when unpacked, really unpacks a lot of punch. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's interesting because in our English text, the word God is singular. But what language was uh, the book of Genesis originally written in? Hebrew. And so when you go to the Hebrew text, it says, In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Now, the word Elohim is the plural word for gods. In the beginning, gods created the heavens and the earth. The singular word for God in Hebrew is the word El, not Elohim. Now, that's fascinating. Why? Because Islam, Judaism, and Christianity all claim God is monotheistic, meaning there is only one true and living God. And yet, when you go back to the creation event, it states, in the beginning, God's created the heavens and the earth. Fascinating. Is there a grammatical error? Well, it's interesting because go down now to verse 27. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. God, Elohim again, created man in his own image, in the image of God, and then it says, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, he created in Hebrew is the word bara, and it's a singular verb which makes this a fragmented sentence. There, there's error here. How can there be gods, yet singularly they are working in unison? How can there be plural subjects and yet one singular verb? It doesn't make sense. Either the author made a mistake or there is something going on where there is gods or a plurality and yet within a singular being. And then to kind of throw the idea that Grammar is the, the cause or the culprit of the error. We, re, we read verse 26, and I'll read it to you. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, 
according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Who is God talking to in Genesis chapter one, verse 26? Who said that? Himself. But we wouldn't fully know that if we didn't have the rest of the Bible. If, if the Bible ended at Genesis chapter one, we would have this revelation that there are gods or a God or a plurality working in singularity. And we know at least two of these gods or beings in Genesis chapter one. We know God to be God, the father, the creator of all things. And then look at Genesis one, two, the earth was formless and void and the darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the, and who has it up? The spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So we have Elohim revealing himself as father and spirit. But where's Jesus? And so this morning we're going to look at Jesus in a very specific role. Jesus is in the white spaces before Genesis chapter 1, 1. Where is Jesus in Genesis? He is the creator God. If you turn over to John chapter one, the scripture begins to fill in some of the details that Genesis one leaves out. And in John chapter one, verse one, it says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then John in verse 14 then personifies the word, and he says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Greek word is tabernacled. He made his home with us. And we saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Who was God talking to in Genesis 1 when he says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness? It was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit working in unison throughout all of creation. Flip over now to Colossians chapter 1. Probably one of the most powerful descriptions of Jesus Christ in all the Bible. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. What does that mean to you? That he is the image of the invisible God. Well, let's do it backwards. If God were to make himself visible, what would his image look like? Jesus. In Hebrews chapter one, verse one, it says this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And listen to verse three. And Jesus is the radiance of the father's glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Colossians 1.15 says, number one, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And then it says this, the firstborn of all creation. So how can Jesus be creator and still be the firstborn? How does that even work? <laughs> well, in the, in the Hebrew thought, the firstborn has two meanings. Number one, you're actually born first. 
But the implication of it is this, that the firstborn was to get the preeminence, the prominence, the power, the responsibility, and a double portion of the inheritance. So when it talks about firstborn, it can be talking about an actual the sequence of their birth, or it can be talking about how they are to be the preeminent one. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. Not that Jesus was born. He's the creator, not the created. He's the firstborn in the sense that to him, he gets the lion's share of the inheritance and the power. It goes on in verse 16 and says, for by Jesus, all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. What does that say? That because Jesus is the creator God, every form of power is under subjection to his rule. It means the, the demonic powers of the world bend the knee to Jesus Christ. You remember in the ministry of the Lord, he went to this place called the Gadarenes. And he was there. And, and who met Jesus, if you remember the story? There were, there were demon-possessed people, and they, they came towards him, and they were very violent, the Bible says. And even those demons who possessed those men there in the Gadarenes, even they began to worship and bow down to Christ. They call him the son of God. And then they beg him to defer judgment until a later time. When Jesus would go against other demon-possessed people, the spirits would cry out, the Holy One or the Son of Man. They would cry and glorify and exalt the person of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Satan and his kingdom fall subservient to the power and rule of Jesus Christ. Not only in the spiritual realm, but even in the invisible realm. Jesus walked on water which is an incredible testament to his power and authority over even our natural laws. Gravity, we know. Gravity, we can prove. Gravity is everywhere, and yet Jesus walked on water. What does that tell you and I? That even gravity curtsies to Christ himself. Everything bends the knee. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus, he was super tired. He had taught about the parables. He had been teaching the, the masses from morning until night. And then he tells his disciples, let's go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so his boys and him, they hop in the boat, and the fishermen do what the fishermen do. They're, you know, kind of uh, moving the boat across the sea. And Jesus decides, it's time for me to take a siesta. Let me just take a break. I've been going hard all day. I need a rest. So Jesus goes below deck. He grabs a pillow, Mark says, and then he begins to sleep. Well, in that area, particularly in the Sea of Galilee, the, there's two pressure systems that often collide. And when that happens, it can turn the weather there in the Sea of Galilee instantly. And so that, in our Mark 4 story, that happened. And while Jesus is sleeping, the weather turns rapidly and the the waves come up and they start thrashing the boat the wind is howling and these experienced fishermen begin to freak out it's literally the crisis of their life and they go below deck and they cry out to Jesus do you not even care at all that we are about to perish and so Jesus wakes up if I was Jesus, I would have added some words, but there were no words added. And he goes up to the deck, and there the storms are crashing, and there the disciples believe they're about to die. And Jesus says three words. Hush, be still. And the waves go silent. The howling winds begin to stop speaking. And the disciples are fearful. And they look to one another and they ask this question. 
who is this that even the sea and the winds obey? Jesus is the creator God. Now, I want to get this point across. The same power behind let there be is the same exact power behind hush, be still. The same power behind let there be. Think of creation. Think of the planets. Think of our sun and moon. Think of the almost infinite amount of stars. Think about our universe. Think about the the almost infinite amount of creatures in the sea. Think about how beautiful things are when you look at them through a microscope. Think about the miracle of life that grows inside a woman's womb. All of that creation was done with let it be. And the same power says, hush, be still. The disciples had a crisis in their life. It was immediate. It was trying. It was very real. And what was their very first thought? Jesus, you don't even care. How much are we like them? The bills are stacking up. The government is tightening authority. The jobs are becoming less. The the relationships are becoming broken. We look and we say, everything is sinking around us. Jesus, you don't even care. Meanwhile, the Lord says, hush, be still. It's the same power. It's the same creator God. And listen to this. That creator God says this. He calls you friend. There is no greater love than this, than he who lays down his life for his friends. And guess what? Jesus died for you, which means that you are Christ's friend. So I want to say this, Jesus being creator means that you have an ace in the sleeve. It means the very one that holds everything together. And science cannot understand atoms and neutrons and all of, they cannot understand the force that is holding it together. The Bible calls it the Jesus Tron. It is that force in which Christ himself holds everything in place. So your problems your insecurities, hush and be still. Where is Jesus in Genesis? He's number one in the first chapter and he reveals himself as the creator God. The second way, and we're gonna look at now Genesis chapter three, we see Christ on full display is not only as the creator, but the redeemer of the world. So Jesus, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit worked in unison. It's that same singular verb in which they created all things together. And was it good or was it bad? Everything God does is good. He is good. There is only one but good, that is God. And so everything that flows from him is good. So when he created, it was good. When he created the land and the sea, it was good. And when he created you, it was very good. And so Adam and Eve, they were in the garden and it was perfect. They had everything that they can ever want and they were given duties. Tend to the animals, tend to the, to the garden and do not eat from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. Now that's a mouthful. They need to have like a little uh, acronym for that one. Anyway, don't eat from that tree. If you do in that day, you will surely die. So you know the story, the serpent comes in and he begins to deceive Eve. And we see Eve fell the exact same way and pattern that you and I fall and sin against God today. It is literally the exact same game plan. So we pick it up in Genesis chapter three and verse six. Genesis three, verse six. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Now God said, don't eat from that tree. But when she was looking at the tree, what did she observe? That it was good for food. That's the lust of the flesh. In 1 John, we are told, don't fall 
for the lust of the flesh. That's the, the sinful desires of your natural being that rebel against God. God said, stay away from that tree. And her natural inclination was to do exactly what God said not to do. It was the lust of the flesh. Then, verse 6 says, and that it was a delight to the eyes. John says, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the what? Eyes. And then, that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. What is pride? I know better than God. She saw the tree. God says, the day you eat, you shall surely die. And she says, wow, it will make me wise. It will make me like God. It's the same three categories of sin you and I fall in today. Every single sin we commit can be found in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the boastful pride of life. Eve had all of them. And when she took from its fruits and ate, she also gave to her husband with her. He should have been late for that dinner party, but he wasn't. And he ate also. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord, verse 8, God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. They violated God. Sin entered in, and then they were naked and ashamed. Because sin always brings shame. That is the everlasting fruit of sin. It will ultimately leave a person in shame. They saw their nakedness. They became shameful. And then they tried to do what? Take matters into their own hands. Oh, I'm going to cover up my own nakedness. So they sew fig leaves together. And then God calls them out. Then God begins to curse man, woman, and beast. And so we pick up our story, and you know it well. I even taught on, on it two weeks ago. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Now this is God giving condemnation to Satan or the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. It's this obscure passage with incredible power and insight. So they were naked, they were ashamed. God immediately steps in and he begins to reveal his redemptive plan for all of humanity. And he says this, that the woman... And you, Satan, the powers of darkness are going to be at war with one another. And that her seed is going to crush your head. But in the meantime, he too will be damaged. The word bruise means to terminate or to crush. So it's not just, you know, a, a bruise on the leg. It's something that is crushing, something that is debilitating. Satan or the serpent, his head will receive a fatal blow. But the, the seed of the woman will also be damaged or crushed in the process. Here's the fascinating thing. We know biology. We went through the LGBT message. We know there's a difference between men and women, males and females. And males are the one that give the seed for procreation. Women don't carry the seed. They carry the egg in which the seed then can fertilize. So what are we saying here in Genesis 3.15? What does that point to? If the virgin is going to, oh, darn it. If the woman is going to have a seed, she has to be what? 
has to be. There can be no other explanation. And then we see God take an animal, kill the animal, and then clothe Adam and Eve. Both Isaiah and Paul the Apostle pick up on that, and they call Jesus our sin covering. It goes all the way back to the garden when God had to shed blood for the remission of sins and atone for the nakedness, sinfulness of humanity. Paul and the uh, uh, prophet Isaiah said, Christ is our covering. He is the one in which covered humanity's sin. And so we get a little glimpse. How is God going to do this? He's going to do it through the birth of a virgin or through the virgin's birth. And that male seed is going to grow up and he's going to leave a lasting, damaging blow to Satan. But he himself will be crushed. Now, if we just stop there, you couldn't say, well, that's Jesus for sure. We couldn't, we don't even know how the seed is going to redeem, but we do know how it's beginning. But God reveals to us even deeper his plan and his purpose. So flip the page to Genesis chapter five. In Genesis five, we see Christ as our redeemer. Genesis 5.1 says this, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. Now here's a genealogy. It goes from Adam to Noah and his sons. Does anybody here ever kind of skip over the genealogies? I used to all the time, literally. It's like there's a whole bunch of names I can't pronounce, skip, you know, swipe right. Let's keep moving. This is vitally important. Let me tell you the names that are listed in this genealogy and why it matters. So we have some names. The first name is Adam. Adam has a son and his name is Seth. Seth has a son and his name is Enosh. Enosh has a son and his name is Kenan. Kenan has a son, his name is Mahalalel. Mahalalel has a son named Jared. Jared has a son named Enoch. Enoch has a son named Methuselah. Methuselah has a son named Lamech, and Lamech has a son named Noah. Why is this important? As you can see on the screen, when you begin to take the meanings of each of the names and you put them together, you will see the New Testament Christ gospel crying out. Adam means man, Seth means appointed, Enosh means mortal, Kenan means sorrow or sorrowful, Mahalalel means the blessed God, Jared means shall come down, Enoch means teaching, Methuselah means his Death shall bring, Lamech means the despairing, and Noah means rest. You have the gospel of Jesus Christ in Genesis chapter 5. God gives us the precept in Genesis 3.15. The virgin's going to conceive, and his seed shall crush the demonic forces. But we don't have any more. Now we know more, that man was appointed mortal and sorrowful. That means that we were dead in our sins and our trespass. When Adam bombed in the garden, he represented all of humanity. And through him, death entered in and, or sin entered in and death because of sin. All have fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. The prophet Ezekiel says, the soul that sins shall surely die. The Bible says, none seeks after God. None are righteous. Our mouths are like an open tomb. It's a terrible analysis of the human depraved condition. Man is appointed mortal and sorrowful. So God had to do something. And through the virgin, what did he do? The blessed God came down teaching. Christ came, born of a virgin. The virgin shall conceive and bear a child. And what is his name? What shall his name be? Which means what? 
the blessed God shall come down teaching. And in his death, what happens? The despairing will receive rest. It's the gospel in the first five chapters of the book of Genesis. So we have the precept in Genesis 3. We now have the message in Genesis 5. And now we have the illustration of Christ our Redeemer in Genesis chapter 22. Now you know this well. What is Genesis chapter 22? It's the story of whom? Abraham and his son Isaac. So you remember Abraham. He's a pagan Chaldean. He lives in the land of the Ur of Chaldees. He worships the gods of those lands. And God in Genesis 12 sovereignly comes to Abraham. And he speaks to Abraham a covenant. And he says, I'm going to give you a people. And I'm going to give you a place. And I'm going to give you the promise. And that promise is that the Messiah will come through you. But first, God had to do something really miraculous in the life of Abraham. So what did uh, Abraham do, Monique? Or what did God tell Abraham? What had to happen before the covenant? There you go. He had to have a promised child. The problem is, Abraham is 75 when God tells him that. Sarai isn't much uh, younger than him. They're already past the, the age of making children and procreating. So there's a big problem. God says, your son, this shall be. Your promised child. And so 25 years go by. 25 years go by. And Abraham still does not have the promised child. And then the Lord visits Sarai. She conceives and they name him Isaac, which means laughter. Because when they heard the promise, Sarai laughed. And so Abraham has the promised child. It's his beloved son, the only begotten of the father. And he's taking his son now. And we pick up the story in Genesis 22.1. Genesis 22.1 says, Now it came about after these things, that God tested Abraham and said to Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Interesting because God says, take your son, your only son. Abraham had another biological child named Ishmael, but he did that through the flesh. He tried to force God's promise through sinfully taking matters into his own hands. And when God looked at Ishmael, he looked at him as illegitimate. So when he was concerning himself with Abraham, he said, take your only son the real son, the son of promise to a mount in Moriah and sacrifice him there. You cannot have a testimony without a test. But this is a test. 25 years he waited for this promise. And now he has his son, maybe uh, teens, maybe mid-20s, And God says, I want you to take his life. So he goes to this mount, and it's a very fascinating mount. This specific mount is the same mount that um, David would go and sacrifice to the Lord. And then it would be where his son, Solomon, built the first temple. It would be the exact same mount where Herod would come and build the second temple. And currently today, the mount in which uh, Abraham took his son Isaac to be sacrificed is there in Jerusalem at the Dome of the Rock. That mosque with that big dome, that is the mount in which Abraham took his boy up and was going to sacrifice, excuse me, sacrifice him to the Lord. And so verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering 
and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. What do you think Abraham believed when he said to those men, we're going to go up and we're going to come back together? What do you think his thought process was? God was going to do one of two things, either stop him from sacrificing his son, which we know in scripture, he had no idea that was going to happen. He had the, the dagger up and was ready to drop the bomb. I mean, he was committed to this. So it means that he believed that God could raise Isaac up from the dead again. It took three full days for them to get to this mount. And I can't imagine Father Abraham's mind just thinking for three full days, my son can and will be resurrected from the dead. I mean, it's a powerful illustration of what God is going to do. In verse 6, it says, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. So here is the only begotten father to the only begotten son, and the son carries the wood, just like Christ carried his cross. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked together. And then they came to the place which God had told them. And Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and, be, and looked and behold behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Yehovah Yiri. The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. 2,000 years later, the father lays the wooden cross on the son. And instead of the Mount Moriah, Christ, because if you remember from Leviticus, he is our sin offering. And the sin offering must be taken outside the camp to be sacrificed. So Christ, our sin offering, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, was led to another mount called Calvary, Golgotha, the place of the skull, and there the knife would plunge. There would be no stop, stop. There would be no rescuing of the son. There would only be his death. And Isaiah chapter 58 or 53 verse 10 says, and it pleased God to crush him. It pleased the father to crush his son. Christ is our redeemer. He was the one born of the virgin in chapter 3. And we know that he is the blessed God who would come down teaching and through his death will bring rest. And he is the one who is our satisfactory atonement, our sacrificial atonement so that we can be made right with God. 
So what does that mean for the Christian? Well, if Jesus is the creator God, then you have nothing to worry about in this life. If Jesus is the redeemer, you have nothing to worry about the next life because your sin has been paid in full. And just like uh, the apostle Paul would write, the lamb was slain before the foundations of the world. The creator God knew he would be the redeemer of the world before the words, let there be. So we see Christ as creator. We see Christ as redeemer. And quickly, we're going to sow one more facet of our Lord in the book of Genesis. So flip over quickly to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17 starting at verse one. This is the third time God has spoken to Abraham, reiterating his covenant. Only in this uh, text, God actually adds one extra clause, which is very important. Genesis 17, one. Now, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you a father father of a multitude of nations. And I will make make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you. And here's the new clause. And kings will come forth from you. Genesis 12 never added kings. Genesis 15, never added kings. Genesis 17, God tells Abraham, not only are you going to have a people, not only are you going to have a place, the land of Israel, but you're going to have the promise of Messiah and through that line, a kingly nation. Do you know how long it took for God to fulfill that promise that through Abraham would come a king? How long do you think that took? Well, let me ask a, a, a question before that, I suppose. What king first uh, solidified or honored or, or made, come, made come to pass Abraham's covenant that through him a king would come? Yay, David. Technically, it was Saul, but he's illegitimate. The people herald and lifted him up. And God said, no, you know, man looks on the outward appearance, but I look on the heart. That's not my dude. My dude is a little shepherd. He's a little ruddy guy and he's running around and he's a man after my own heart. And so we see about a thousand years after Genesis 17, that there's a little guy called David. And there he was running towards Goliath. You come at me with sword and spear, but I come at you in the name of the Lord. And he gets his sling and his five smooth stones and whack, uh, just a shot right into the, the center head of Goliath. And Goliath drops to his knees and he falls over. And David's name grows great. And Saul begins to get jealous. And Saul tries to kill David. And then Saul is ultimately killed himself. And then God exalts his king, the man after his own heart, David. And so what do we know about David? He loved the Lord, but he had his own issues, right? He committed adultery, he was a murderer, and he was a man of war. And so he looked at his palace, this amazing uh, construction, and he's like, I live in a great place. And he looked at the little tent that God was staying in, and he says, God lives in a trashy place. How is it that God is staying there, and I get this massive big palace? So he wanted to build a temple for the Lord. But God says, you're a man of blood. You're a man of war. You've slain many. You cannot build that for me. But because you desired it, I'm going to bless you. 
And so in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 15, God speaking through the prophet Nathan begins to speak a covenant or a promise, a testament to David. And he says this, and this is now fulfilling and adding on to that Abrahamic covenant, that kings will come through Abraham. So God says to David, 2 Samuel 7, 15, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Forever. God says to David, your throne and your kingdom will never fail. So how is God going to do that through David? How does that happen? Does David's earthly throne fail? So how is God going to keep his promise forever? Who comes through David? Who is of the line of David? Jesus Christ. The Bible says that he is the root of Jesse, that he is the sprout, that he is the son of David, that he is the Messiah, that king that will sit on the throne and rule and reign forever. Romans chapter 1, 3, Paul says concerning the son, Jesus Christ, he is of David concerning the flesh, meaning that Jesus is a direct of direct lineage of David the king. When you read Matthew chapter one, those genealogies we skip over, those genealogies show that both Mary and Joseph in both Luke and Matthew, both their lineage comes from the line of David. Here's a pop quiz. What tribe was David from? David was from the line of Judah, which makes Genesis 49, if you can flip there, Genesis 49, all the more intriguing. So God told Abraham, through you is going to come kings. Then God appointed David and told David, through your line will be a king that will rule and reign forever. And they are both of the line of Judah. So Genesis chapter 49, starting at verse 8. We have Israel, who is Israel's first name before he got a name change. What was his name? Jacob. So Yaakov, which means heel catcher or the shady one. God changed his name to Israel, which means governed by God. And so Israel or Jacob is about to die. He's laying on his deathbed. He calls all his sons in and he begins to pronounce blessings and cursings. And he gets to Judah and he says this, Genesis 49, 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares to rouse up against him? And here's a prophecy, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So Israel is telling Jacob that they are going to be the kingly line, that the scepter, you know what a scepter is? It's that rod that kings and queens hold, that that scepter is to be in their line. And when you see David's covenant, you realize he is the first legitimate king from what tribe? Judah. And when you go through the history and through the split of Israel and Judah, you will realize one thing, that Judah continued to have prominence and rule for a very long time. Now, when you talk to the Hebrews, specifically to an Orthodox Jew, and you ask them, 
What is the role of a king or a queen or monarch? They will say one thing, the power over life and death. It's the same thing of the government of Romans 13. You remember, we went through that, and the role of the responsibility of the government is to, one, wield the sword. They have the power over life, and they have the power over death. And the Hebrews, the Jews, the Orthodox Jew believes that same thing. True power is only manifested through someone who can wield the life of power or of the power of life and of death. So what does this mean? The scepter or that, that, uh, the embellishment or the, the personification, I don't know, the idea that this power over life and death shall not depart, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. So the scepter is capital punishment. When we follow history, here's a fascinating thing about Judah and about uh, their rule in that lower kingdom, which encompasses Jerusalem. They continued with capital punishment until a very specific date. And that date was, or it was the summer, probably August, but we know summer of 7 A.D. Now, King Herod, he was consolidating power at that time. And so he removed the power of the Jews to create or to conduct capital punishment. Why didn't they stone Jesus? Because they couldn't. They had to go through the Romans. Even in captivity, the Jews can still, when their people violated the law, take them out and stone them. Even under the rule of the Grecians and Alexander the Great, they can still do capital punishment. Even under the Romans, they could, all the way up until Herod in uh, August or summer of A.D. 7. Here's another fascinating thing. You know those magi? The wise men, they were brilliant and they were coming from this area of Persia and they get to Jerusalem and remember they meet King Herod and they ask him, where's the new king? And he begins to tremble because the Magi, they weren't just some, you know, wise men. They were very powerful elitists and one of their main jobs was to appoint new kings. Herod tells the Jews, you can no longer commit capital punishment. The scepter has passed. In fact, there's a historian that says, in 7 AD, the rabbis flooded the streets of Jerusalem, wailing and crying that the scepter has passed. And little did they know, a couple years prior, there was a babe in Bethlehem, the king, born that day of the son of David to fulfill the promise that God made to Abraham. The word Shiloh, it's a term that the Jews know to be as Messiah. But do you know what the word actually means? The word, it's found 33 times in the Old Testament. 32 times it refers to a city. There's only once, and it's here, it means something else. The word Shiloh means to whom all is appointed to. So the scepter shall not pass until the one in whom everything is appointed to has come. And when he does, look at the result. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And the word peoples can also be translated the nations. This is a prophecy to show Jesus as king. And when he comes, the family line or the earthly line of David, which failed at AD 7, was fully made manifest when Christ came in the flesh. So we see Jesus as the creator, as the redeemer, and as the king. And what does that mean for us as Jesus as king? It means you are rich. Romans 8 says, you are heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. What does God own? 
and Christ is king, and you are his friend, which makes you, my friends, incredibly wealthy. So if Jesus is creator, we have no worries for this life. We're filthy rich, and we have no worries for the next life because he is our redeeming God. With that, let's pray, and we'll get right into communion. Father, we thank you for your scripture. We thank you, God, that your word is alive and true. We thank you, God, that history is his story. That Jesus, you are everywhere. You are in the white spaces before Genesis 1-1. You are in the white spaces after Revelation 22. And so with that, I pray, Lord, that we would come to know you better. We would come to have a richer and fuller and deeper understanding of who you are, that we would be able to trust you and that we would be able to follow you all the days of our lives. Jesus, there was a a man that came to you and he says, I believe, help my unbelief. And Lord, so often I find myself there Lord, I believe that you are the creator God. I believe with all my heart that you are the redeemer of your elect. And I believe you are the king. But I pray, God, that you would help my unbelief. And in those frail moments of faulty faith, that you would minister to us. Lord, as we come to your table, as we prepare for communion, Lord, would we bring our sins before you? God, the sins of commission, those sins that we do and that we practice that bring reproach upon your name, defile your glory, Take all that you've done for us and throw it in the trash. Those sins of commission, Lord, I pray, God, that we would lay them before you. And those sins of omission, when you command us to pray without ceasing, when you command us in all things give thanks, for this is the will of God for you. Those things, God, you tell us to do that we don't do. I pray that we can humbly before your table, repent. Church, take this time and go before the Lord. Take this time and present your sins before him. The one who has taken your guilt because he is your guilt offering. Lord, we need you. We cannot do this on our own. We need this church. Would you bless this time as we meet before your table? In Jesus' name, amen. Paul would write these words. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you're prepared to take the Lord's communion, then would you take and eat? In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you take and drink? Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the creator of Genesis 1, that you are the redeemer of Genesis 3, that you are the fulfillment of Genesis 5, that you are the propitiation, the ark in which appeases God's wrath in the days of Noah. Thank you, God, that you are the fulfillment and culmination of the Abrahamic covenant. We thank you, God, that we have a picture of Christ in the person of Joseph, that he was betrayed by his brother, sold into slavery for silver, betrayed, and all the while, God was using it for good. We thank you, God, that Shiloh has come, the one in whom all things are appointed, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've done, and thank you for revealing yourself, Jesus in Genesis. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church of Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.